Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The very commandment which promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are past finding out. There is a truth which is unknown in the modern world, except in its prevalence. I mean by that, that a quick examination of the moral state of our society reveals clearly the existence and reality of human sin. But at the same time as it is everywhere found, it is nowhere understood. We do not look for the unregenerate man to understand sin. We would expect, however, for the Christian to do so. But even the Christian has little knowledge of the biblical truth of human sin. How then shall we learn about it? The classic passage of the Word of God is before us. Romans chapter 7 describes the plight of sinful man. And Paul here, though he was perhaps one of the best educated men of his time, confesses that he did not know the reality and the truth of human sin until the law showed it to him. The Spirit, working through the law of God, unfolded the reality and the strength and subtlety of human sin to Paul. And he gives us here his own experience, and more than that, the Bible doctrine of human sin. How then shall we learn about sin? Certainly not by sinning. In fact, the one who sins the most will know the least about the nature of sin. God has arranged it so that we learn about sin by studying his law. The law of God reveals the strength and subtlety 
of human sin. Perhaps that's one reason we know so little about sin, for we know little of God's law. But as the shorter catechism reminds us, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So let's ask the question of these few verses of Romans 7. What is the Bible doctrine of sin shown to us by the law? Well, we see at the outset there in verse 7 that sin here is singular, meaning that it is not a series of external acts the way we accustomed to thinking of it. Sin is a principle. It is not a series of acts. If it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. Paul, when he uses that word know, uses the particular Greek word that speaks of a deep reflection and experience kind of knowing, not simply a superficial knowing. I knew it in my inner being that sin is this principle. And the Greek word here is hamartia, which means, again, the consciousness of having a root of sin within one. This inner corrupt nature which gives rise to sinful acts. The spring of sin is within us. So the way to measure our conduct is not to count the number of sins we may have externally, but to hold up the law of God before us and His holiness and to see what is the reaction of our inner being. And we will there find the presence of this inner principle of sin. Paul discovered it particularly in commandment number 10. The other commandments, in a superficial way, can be seen to command external acts, refrain from killing and from stealing and so on. These, if seen only superficially, are speaking of actions. But when he came by the Spirit to commandment number 10, he saw that even the slightest inclination or thought or desire which was contrary to any of the other nine commandments, even if there was the slightest beginnings of lust or of profaning God's name or of breaking the Sabbath, even the slightest beginnings of these showed him that there was deep within him a desire. He calls it a lust a longing. This inner desire was within him which was against the will of God. And any rising up of that desire was itself sinful. That's when Paul came to see that sin is not external acts, but it's a spring of desire within him. Then he was equipped to understand the great desire of our first parents for that forbidden fruit, the longing of Achan for the booty which he should not have had, Absalom's desire for the crown of his father, Ananias and Sapphira wanting the prestige of the early church, Demas longing after the present world. 
he began to understand what made men sin. It was this desire. And why was that desire evil? Because it ran straight into and contrary to the will of God for human life. What he found was echoed, of course, by the Apostle James when he said, and desire, when it conceives, brings forth sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, this principle of sin, which is being described here, is an active one. It actually is positive. It's very popular today to think of sin as simply the absence of moral qualities, as if sin is somehow just a negative thing. But here, sin is an active, positive principle, which is so insidious and strong that it actually comes into the personality and uses the law of God as a springboard for its own nefarious work. It comes in and uses the law of God like a fulcrum, putting its evil thrust into the law of God and turning that against man's well-being. Using the law of God is a kind of base of military operation in which it can come in and from that can conquer the personality. That's what Paul means here when he says, sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. That is, that because sin came using the commandment, it aroused in him a rebellion against God. None of us likes to be told what to do. But the moment the commandment came and set down limits to our actions, sin said, you don't have to stand for that, and made us rebellious. Sin made us think that it was unjust of God to regulate not only our actions, but our desires. Who does God think he is to tell me I cannot even have the inclination to be angry, much less to kill my brother? How can God try to govern the thoughts of my heart? So sin uses the commandment to stir up more sin until desire proliferates and we begin to do sins which we had never even thought of before. The commandments, because sin uses them, introduce us to possibilities and variations of sin to make our life of desire a very cesspool of iniquity. No, sin uses the commandment. It is an active principle. It is not merely a series of isolated acts. Well, let's go on then to see what further truth the apostle by the Spirit gives us into the understanding of sin. This principle within is utterly contrary to the will and law of God. Because that will, we clearly read here, is just 
and holy and good. Paul is an advocate of the law of God. He loves God's law as any true believer does. And what he says here is, that law is good. Of course it is good. What does the law do? It shows us what sin is. The law is like a plumb line that a carpenter would use to see if his wall is true. And then he straightens it before he fastens it to the building. Why, that plumb line is good, and the law of God is good. It shows us what sin is. It is just. There are no unfair commandments in God's law. And no one will ever be able to stand at last before God and argue that his commandments were unjust or unfair. They are utterly just and holy. They show us what life is to be and what men are to be and how we ought to live. He makes it clear so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. But the problem is that sin, since it rebels so vehemently against the law of God, shows itself to be evil. Sin is like a river flowing through the life of a man, and it meets the commandments of God, and there it swells up in flood tide. Like reaching a great dam, it becomes angry and torrential and would break the dam. And sin struggles against the barriers which God has erected in his holy law. And the more it struggles, the more it reveals that it is an enemy to God and his will. It's an invader. It is a foreign intrusion into man. Sin is not original with man. It is, does not belong to us as a vital, essential part of our life. It is an intruder that has come in and is seeking to wreak all kinds of havoc within us. Now here, Paul, by the Spirit, opens his diary to prove why he said there was a time when I was alive and sin was dead. He doesn't mean he didn't sin, but that sin was so much of a tyrant over him that he wasn't even aware of it. It's as if sin was dormant because he was so completely the captive of it, he was not even aware. The most dangerous condition you can be in is to think that you're not a sinner. That is fraught with peril. And that was Paul. I was alive. That is self-satisfied, self-complacent. Sin was dead. That's my, that was my state before I knew Christ. Then the commandment came. Not that it hadn't been there before, but it came now. The Spirit is bringing the commandment and applying it to his heart. And when the commandment came and met the resistance of sin, sin was revived and energized by the resistance. Sin sprang to life, afraid that it would lose its precious clutches, and sin held me fast. And it put its grip on me so deep and so great that I knew myself to be helpless and hopeless in its care, and I died. I became broken in spirit. 
I became what Matthew 5 calls the Lord's words, poor in spirit. I was broken, and that's just where God wanted him. Because when you're broken in spirit, when you realize your utter inability to keep this commandment which has come upon you, and sin rears up its head to hold you ever more tightly, then you die to all of your hope and ability and to all your supposed obedience and desire to keep the law on your own. You cannot do it. I died. What Paul is saying to us here is that, that this very commandment which promised life proved to be death to me. In other words, sin is a spoiler. The law of God was meant to give life. In the Old Testament we read, do this and live. Not that any of us infected by human sin could ever keep the commandments in a measure which would bring forth life. The commandments cannot produce salvation. Nevertheless, they were ordained to life, and if anyone could keep them, then he would be able to have eternal life. They were ordained for good and for life. Do this and live. They are the pattern of life. But what did sin do? It took that which was meant for good and for life, and finding opportunity in it, it spoiled it and made it instead the messenger of death. Now the commandments of God stand over against the human soul, and we shall be measured by them. The unbeliever is under the law of God, and someday his life will be judged by the commandments, and the commandments will mean death to him and judgment because sin used the commandments and spoiled them to his own destruction. How many times has sin entered into what was to be a lovely marriage, home, job, church, and spoiled it, taken the house of your dreams and shattered it, taken the marriage that rose out of a heart love, sin entering in through lust, spoiled it. It takes that which is good and which is ordained to life and ruins it because sin is contrary to the will and law of God. There is one further principle that we see in this section. Sin is not only a principle, it's not only contrary to the will and law of God, but sin is deceitful and destructive to the human soul. Sin, in verse 11, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. And then in verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me by no means? It was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What we do not normally see is that human sin is utterly beguiling and deluding and deceiving. 
sin deceived me, said Paul. Here's a man of brilliant intellect, trained in Phariseeism, seeking after God and utterly religious, and he says, sin deceived me. Why? That's no surprise, is it? How Eve was deceived. She did not think she was sinning. She did not think she was disobeying God. She thought by the words of the tempter that she was doing the right thing. She was going to become wise, like God is wise. She did not consciously enter into sin. She lost sight for a moment of a precious truth that would have prevented her. And that is that God sometimes commands things for which he annexes no reason or benefit to us whatsoever so that we could have the taste of what it's like to obey him just because he said it. Every once in a while, God will ask you to obey him on something without giving you any other benefits or reasons just because he said it. And there's a delicious obedience in that. Now, Eve lost sight of that fact. She could not see how refraining from that tree had anything to do with the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, to partake of it would be good. She thought it was good, and she was deceived. Not Adam. Adam was not deceived. Willingly, deliberately, self-consciously, disobediently, he took that fruit, and he brought us into sin. But what a deceiver Satan is. He didn't even come to Adam, approached him through his wife. Have you ever measured the deceitfulness of human sin? It will try to get you to abuse the law of God. Human sin will try to get you to be saved by keeping the law of God. You can't be saved that way. You can't keep it. Human sin will try to get you to become holy by keeping the law of God. You can't become holy by keeping the law of God. Human sin will try to get you to think that sin itself and that the commandments are all external acts and try to get you away from the idea of it as a principle. And if sin fails in these abuses of the law, then it will come at another level and say to you, all right, you've sinned. You have no further chance now of grace. Since you're such a sinner, there is no hope for you. Abandon all hope and go on sinning. Why not sin now that you've already ruined all your chances. That's a favorite deception of sin. Or he will come with this one. Since the law has no relation to your salvation, and you are saved by a free gift of grace, the law now has been discarded, and the commandments of God have no relation to you. Therefore, live apart from them. That's a deception of Satan. Or he will try to create an antagonism within you to the law of God so that you come to despise it. For example, you will think its precepts to be unjust and unfair. How can God limit the things I think about? 
What right has he? How can God keep one day for himself? What right does he have to do that? You will think it unjust and unfair of the commandments. That's the antagonism and the deception of Satan. He will come saying to you that God is a righteous or unrighteous judge. That God stands waiting over you to clobber you. And he will seek to paint God with pictures leaving behind the loving Father, which we see in Scripture. He will come with words like this. You have certain drives within you. Why not fill them? After all, God put those drives in you. Why not let them be expressed? He will develop within you the antagonism to the law of God. He'll make you think you are somebody. Since I am somebody, who does God think he is telling me what to do? I'm over the law. I'm beyond the law of God. Oh, how deceptive he is. He will make sin attractive to you. It'll be alluring and polished. And godly ways will seem drab and uninteresting by comparison. Sin is glamorous. Who wants to follow the road to piety? But you see, he never discloses to you the consequences of those sins. He said to Adam and Eve, for example, you will not surely die. You will not die. He didn't want them to see the consequences of their action. He doesn't show you the long-term results of a path of human sin, but only the short-term gains and pleasures for a season, that's all. And it's over. But it pays through eternity. No, this is a deceptive thing. It comes to us and beguiles us. We do not even think that that temptation which is before us is sin. It may look like pity. It may look like rationalization. It may look like escape or fantasy. It may look like it will bring us some good benefits. But behind it is the deceiver. And he waits to destroy. That's what it means here. Sin working death in me. And the word there means powerfully at work to produce death. It may look as if sin has your well-being at heart, your pleasure, your good. But the real aim of sin is your death. The wages of sin is just that. Sin does not care for your well-being, your health, your happiness, your pleasure, ultimately. It seeks to destroy you because there's an enmity which God has put between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. And this hostility is there. And Satan, through sin, is seeking to destroy you. And he will not rest until he has accomplished it. But he gives himself away because he overdoes it. Satan always does. He goes one step too far and spoils it all. For we read here 
that he used such a glorious and good thing as the law in his awful purpose so that any thinking person can realize the exceeding sinfulness of sin. If sin would take something as pure and white as the law of God, that transcript of his own character and being, and put that to work in its evil purposes, then sin must be sinful beyond measure. Every child can see that. And sin exposes it all and lets its real motives be known because it uses good in the purpose of evil. There then are the principles which God has given us in this section. I call you, therefore, to let the law of God lead you to Christ. I know that the picture of human sin found in Romans 7 is dark. But there is a remedy. There is healing. The Savior not only promises to pardon, but to subdue sin in you. He calls you to repent of it, to see how contrary to his will and law the thrust of your life has been, how you have rebelled against him, and how desire has itself ruled your life. And to you, Christ says, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. And so here stands the great physician, the Savior of souls. If your body were sick, you would run to the doctor. Why do you resist the heavenly healer who calls you to come and be made whole by his precious remedy, his own blood, the great healer of the human heart. Why do you wait? Why don't you come and apply to him and let this dread disease of human sin be conquered in you and rendered inoperative and powerless and conquered forever in your being? It seeks to destroy you, and the Savior would give you life. Then sin no more, coming to Christ. Leave behind you those old patterns of life which are destructive and deceitful. Do not return to the vomit of the old ways, but seek to live in the new ways of holiness and grace. Let the law of Christ show you the gruesomeness of human sin so that you will be able to wage war against it. The believer is not sanctified by keeping the law. But he is sanctified when he allows the law of God to continually reflect and light up the lingering sin which remains in his life, that he may wage war against it, whether it be in the thought life, Every inclination, as Heidelberg Catechism says, every inclination or thought contrary to the commands of God must not even begin to rise in us. Thought, word, deed, sins of omission, sins of commission, all of the whole pattern of sinful life 
which has become so familiar to us. Wage war against it. All out war. And the motivation and the revelation to this is to allow the law of God to show to you the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Happy is that man or woman who having said goodbye to his own abilities, his own obedience, his own efforts, and has admitted his helplessness and his utter need of a Savior, rests now in Christ as his righteousness and pursues the holiness of Christ in daily living. That's the happy man, the happy woman. And I covet that for you, each one. Let us pray. Thanks be unto God who has given us the holy and just and good law to light up the sinfulness of the human heart. And all thanks and praise to thee for giving us our divine Savior who stands and waits to forgive and heal and make new the sinful heart. So we come. seeking, applying to Christ that he may apply to us his precious blood for salvation and holiness and eternal life.